My name is Fiona Zeiger and you're listening to The Migration Podcast. In this episode, I speak to Sylvia Ang and Val Kolik-Peisker about their work on new Chinese migrations to Singapore and Australia. In our conversation, we focus on one of the consequences of these newer migrations, rising hostility towards China and its people, or Sinophobia. This interview was recorded in January 2020. Hi Sylvia and Val, thank you for joining me on the Migration Podcast. You both do research on migration. Could you tell me more about new migrations and its consequences in Australia and in Singapore? Let's talk about Australia a little bit. Yeah. Well, new migrations, there are various ways of defining what you call new migrations. So how far in the past we need to go to talk about new migrations. But perhaps we could start with, with the Chinese because um, that's, that's our core topic at the moment. And if we talk about the Chinese in Australia, then we have some very, very old migration, which goes back to the gold rush which is when it all started, it's 1851. And um, it's interesting that by late 1850s, the proportion of Chinese uh, people in the population, in the total population of Australia, which was then very small, was the same proportion as it is now. <laughs> so, and now population of Australia, 25 million, is not that small, but uh, it's a lot more Chinese people. In between, all kinds of things happen with this kind of migration. We had um, white Australia policy from 1901, from when Australia became federated, to uh, 1972, when no Chinese people were allowed to come at all. No one who could not prove that they were European, that means white, because Australia was meant to be preserved for the white, white men. <laughs> But the, the, the wave of Chinese migration, which we could define as new migration, is the skilled migration that started in the 1980s in a fairly massive way with the various types of migrants, which is from international students to temporary skilled migrants to permanent settlers, is now a pretty massive immigration. So we can talk about increasing proportion of Asian population and Chinese population in Australia and how that changes gradually demography of Australia. Okay, how about Singapore? Singapore is known to be a multicultural city-state that was made by migrants years ago, but there are also new flows of migrants coming into Singapore. Right. So the thing with Singapore is that we have migrants from very diverse nationalities as well as in very diverse uh, jobs, so whether it's in terms of the highly skilled and as, as well as the low wage. So this is a little bit distinct from, I think, Australia. However, we have maintained the CMIO model, which is the Chinese, Malay, Indian, others uh, model as a way of managing the population. And since uh, Singaporeans' uh, birth rates have been very low, especially of the Singaporean Chinese, in the past two decades, the state has been bringing in lots of ethnic Chinese to really fuel up the um, population. So what's interesting about the mainland Chinese migrants that have been coming in the past two decades then is that they are made up of both the higher wage as well as the low wage. Although the lower wage is actually very visible because they are they comprise mainly of service sector workers or in terms of construction workers. 
So there has been quite a bit of backlash then against um, mainland Chinese in Singapore. And it's resulted in what I call co-ethnic racism. So what is interesting is that while mainland Chinese are able to then fill up the C in the CMIO model, they are perceived as quite different from the Singaporean Chinese. So whether it's in terms of their culture or in terms of their language. And this is perceptions, right? This uh, does not necessarily match the realities. So if you, especially online, it's quite easy to find uh, the term PRC uh, being associated with um, what we call racialized terms and with uh, things like being uncouth or they're considered um, dirty or even immoral. And I've written about this in my own work. You decided to compare Singapore and Australia when speaking about xenophobia. So in what way do the two cases actually compare? What makes them comparable cases? Well, Australia and Singapore are very different countries, obviously. Australia is the whole big continent and Singapore is a small city-state that's 10 times smaller than Melbourne city that I come from in Australia. So <laughs> population is very similar, about 5 million. But in many ways, they're similar countries. They are both kind of started as a British colonial outposts. And after the British withdrew, the Chinese, I mean, before Chinese were coming, but it was a very quick transformation from a fishing village to, to a big city, big modern city. Whereas Australian settler past is now, well, long compared to Singapore, of course, short to any kind of European, compared to any kind of European country uh, from 1788, you know, to today it's a bit over 200 years. But it's, it's a settler colony, so uh, the, the main population, bulk of population, three quarters of Chinese in Singapore and three quarters of white European, mainly Anglo population in uh, in Australia are non-indigenous populations, are settler populations. So that is another point of comparison. And so we are kind of loosely in the British Commonwealth, or you know that kind of sphere, if you like. So um, English is the main official language, right, in both countries. We are very diverse countries, and as Sylvia explained, um, multicultural Singapore is different from multicultural Australia, but we both call countries multicultural, meaning very diverse ethnically, and there are models of managing their diversity that is kind of enshrined in law, if you like. In different ways, again, it's quite different systems, but they're very globalized countries, so um, yeah, they're comparable in, in many different ways. You mentioned multiculturalism. Um, in what ways does Australia handle multiculturalism from Singapore and vice versa? Well, I would say Sylvia can explain the, the Singaporean model, but Singaporean model is enshrined in law, whereas Australian model is more like ideology, and there are policies, but there is no law on multiculturalism. Laws that relate to multiculturalism in Australia are only laws that are anti-discrimination, mm -hmm. and uh, immigration law that says that people can't be discriminated anymore after 1972 on the basis of race or ethnicity when they apply for Australian visa. So it's a different way of regulating it. Yes, right. So as I mentioned, uh, we have the CMIO model, uh, which is the Chinese, Malay, Indian, others model of population management. Um, so if you're not a Chinese or Malay or an Indian, then you automatically get uh, slotted into the others category, which is probably not a very nice category to be in. Uh, we have, I think, uh, laws to protect racial harmony. 
However, I would note that it's quite interesting that then any other kind of insults or racialization of other groups that are not in the CMIO model, especially of migrants, whether it's uh, Chinese migrants, mainland Chinese migrants, or Filipino migrants, then kind of get largely ignored. So does the C in the CMIO model not stand for recent Chinese migrants? Or what is the... How would this uh, CMIO model manage to accommodate or fails to accommodate newer migrants? Right. I think the state, I think, had the intentions to include the mainland Chinese in the C of the CMIO model. Uh, hence, I think the large really intake of these migrants over the past two decades. However, on the, I mean, on the ground for the Singaporean Chinese, um, was, I think the state did not expect that there would actually be a backlash they assumed that the Chinese ethnicity would allow the or would enable the, the mainland Chinese migrants to fit in. But from my own research, it seems that Singaporean Chinese don't quite accept them as equals or that they are the same kind of Chinese. So does this coethic migration challenge the CMIO model in any way? Yes, it certainly does. Uh, I think it challenges Chineseness really, right? So what mm. is Chineseness if both groups are labeled Chinese, mainland Chinese and then Singaporean Chinese, but then they don't get along and they have, in fact, I think different versions of Chineseness, uh, as I've written about, then uh, what is actually Chineseness? And in terms of um, the states or Singaporean states version of Chineseness, it has been really very narrow definitions that's enshrined in, you know, the Speak Mandarin campaign and, and Chinese language uh, education at some levels. So, the definition of Chineseness then um, for the Singaporean Chinese is in being increasingly challenged by you know the confrontations with the mainland Chinese. Mm. So if we compare xenophobia in Singapore with xenophobia in Australia, which is what you wrote about, yeah. right? I mean this is this is a challenge for us really because it's both xenophobia, definitely, mm-hmm. but it's really very different forms. So it just shows how complex these phenomena mm-hmm. are and how they can take different forms in different contexts. Um, Australian xenophobia was very strong, so it was very strong during gold rush in 19th century. At that time, you would say the world was so racist, it wasn't that surprising. But uh, in the 1980s, when we had the first wave of, uh, of Asian immigrants, and mainly Chinese, for obvious reasons, China is a very large country and therefore a very big source of, of migrants, there was immediately a, a certain disquiet, if you like, building and uh, conservative party, which we call confusingly liberal party. Uh, later on, uh, Prime Minister John Howard, that time leader of the opposition in the late 80s, actually voiced this fear that there's too many Asians coming to Australia. And we had that repeated by a far-right party leader, Pauline Hanson, in '96. She said we were swamped by Asians. But then the panic about Asians kind of quietened down. They just became the usual sight on the streets of the cities. And they were good citizens. They were all employed. They were hardworking. And, you know, so they became in a kind of model minority. And there was another aspect to it that China was becoming economically attractive for investment or as a market, as a huge market for for. Australian products and therefore Chinese in Australia were a link between that attractive country for investment and as a market with Australian business. So so we had a peace with the Chinese presence for, for a couple of decades, I would say. 
And then with China rising very fast over the past decade as a global power, there's again now totally different, I could say, Sinophobia, which pertains to the power of China and whether this Chinese uh, minority in Australia is more loyal to China or their origin country than to Australia and whether they could be some kind of fifth column and whether they're spying on us through international students and academic collaborations and whether Chinese origin members of parliament are actually totally loyal to Australia and all kind of things. It's very, very much in the public space in the last few years. So Sinophobia literally means fear and Australia literally is fear, which is quite different from Singapore. It's not so much fear as in exactly. rejection. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, actually well Sinophobia in Singapore started quite similar to Australia in the sense that there was a colonial there was a white other uh, binary. So uh, it really started from colonial times, and this is when the British colonialists really defined the numbers of Chinese immigrants then, in 1819, it started from then to be, uh, and they were categorized as, you know, the Chinese immigrants that were filthy and immoral. And I think what is interesting then is that in more recent times, with the arrival of the mainland Chinese migrants, these colonial tropes have been uh, replicated, and we see kind of very similar uh, discourses that are circulated about mainland Chinese migrants. At the same time, Singapore, with its although it has a Chinese ethnic Chinese majority, it has not always had uh, a smooth sailing relationship with China. So initially, when uh, Singapore first became independent, it stayed away from China because it was afraid that it would be associated with China's communism. Right later on, when China opened its economy, pragmatic Singapore decided to exploit. Uh, the ethnic Chinese links with China to access its markets. And so uh, there has been really um, an ongoing kind of building of the relationship between the two. However, more recently, Sinophobia has uh, emerged in Singapore in, in the form of um, anxiety. And there are really worries that um, China is trying to use its soft power on the ethnic Chinese majority in Singapore to, for Chinese purposes. The rise of China coinciding with a new Chinese migration actually caused quite some concerns and anxieties over Chinese influence. Is that something that both... Yeah, in slightly different ways, but yeah, ways. the gist is, is very similar. Yeah, but in Australia, it's more about the secret Chinese influence, about mm-hmm. spying, about breaking into our, you know, industrial secrets or research mm-hmm. it, you know, it's slightly different in Singapore, I would say. Right. So on, on China, I think China interference in Australia, I think it's, it's like it's openly stated that it's uh, Chinese influence that they are, or Chinese interference that they're worried about. In Singapore, I think the state is much more careful, so it's painted as foreign interference, although uh, many have speculated that they are really referring to the Chinese. You know, we are proximity, whether in terms of cultural proximity, geographical proximity, and even language proximity, that really makes China a very sensitive case to deal with uh, for Singapore. Well, the, the problem with Australian relationship with China, you know, always boils down to economy. You know, for example, Australia is very proud of not having a um, recession in, in 30 years, since 1991. But that's how we sail through GFC without recession, etc. This is all on the back of China, really. The China, as a main trading partner to Australia, slows down, we will slow down. So we're in a kind of 
connected, very much connected economically to China and collaborate with them in many ways. And, and then there are some very big contradictions. For example, Darwin Harbour, which is the main harbour of the north of Australia, is leased to the Chinese for 99 years. Mm-hmm. So basically, this is a very important strategic asset, a port. So if Australian government can do that for money, then, you know, you can, on the other hand, be really scared of what they're going to do. I mean, you just lease them the whole port. They can do whatever they want. So, you know, it's, the relationship is full of contradictions. And then with the tension between China and the U.S., so it's not just complication of our own doing, but it's uh, U.S. as our main military ally and protector. If it comes to a head with China, what is Australia going to choose? Its economy or its military security. So that's the endless source of debate at the moment. Right. I may have thought to mention that Singapore is also a major political ally with US, so it's also caught between the US and China. And I think um, to kind of sum up, I think Singapore's relationship with China and Chinese immigrants is not only a matter of foreign policy, but of its nation building. The ruling parties are pro-immigration stance and relying on Chinese immigration to make up for low birth rates has been increasingly criticised and is very unpopular with uh, Singaporeans in general. And I think in the case of the Singaporean Chinese population, uh, it's quite, its national self-imaginary is really problematic and increasingly difficult to keep as we will discuss with the CMIO model. How can the state reiterate the need for Chinese language proficiency and their affinity to China as motherland while portraying Singapore as different from China? Uh, I think the problems of Chinese privilege in Singapore as well uh, it's, it's really an issue that uh, has been repeatedly brought up. And I think to just sum up, I guess, for both China and Australia, as political and military allies of US, it really makes the internal political complexities spill into the global arena. As the world grapples with the rise of China and a new global constellation of power in the Asian century. Yeah, I think that's all. Thank you so much thank for you, coming on to the Migration Podcast and speaking to me. And thank you for your time. Sylvia Ang is postdoctoral fellow at the Asia Research Institute in Singapore. Val Kolik Peisker is associate professor at RMIT in Melbourne.